0: Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything, is to be found in this podcast, a worker's guide to everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics, this is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Bueniguit altas. Hello and welcome once again to another Trademark Podcast. I'm joined here today by the lads again, Stuart McGill and Sean Byers. Uh, and we're talking stock market stuff once again. It's episode six, I think, of this series. We're trying to wrap our heads around the often opaque world of the of those shiny buildings in the City of London and the Irish Financial Service Centre or whatever they call that place now. Uh, and other sites of capital accumulation and coordination. Uh, trying and often failing to explain uh, complex stuff. Um, and when we succeed, it's only because Stuart McGill's here to help us out. A man formerly of that world who knows what he's talking about uh we are the me and sean are the masters of generalization and broad brushstrokes and Stuart actually knows things which is why he's here um and today we're going to try and delve into the murky world and the deeply geopolitically influential world of commodity markets and i know it's exciting so calm the fuck down take a wee valium breathe slowly into a paper bag uh or form the whatever you call it in yoga the shit in dog position whatever settles you down because we are going to dive into this world today um And look at the trade in the bits and bobs that underpin all of our consumption, which is kind of my understanding of, vague understanding of commodity markets. But I'm going to go to Stuart first and ask him to give us a definition. What exactly is a commodity market, Stuart? Um, I'm assuming there's more than one. And what's sold on it?
1: Basically, commodities which are used in industrial processes or for eating. Okay, And the reason why commodity traders exist is basically... Mines, farms, oil fields aren't in the same place as the buyers, uh, and not all farmers can afford a sales network across the world. So if you're producing some stuff in Peru, say, um, or Bolivia, say, a big fertilizer exporter, uh, that goes to various people across the planet. You ain't gonna have a relationship, uh, a Bolivian farmer with those guys, so it goes to a commodity trader. I mentioned fertilizers, cause that's a major issue just now regarding world inflation. Uh, but uh, that's the basic reason for it. So, also many commodities markets are either over or undersupplied at any particular time, and traders are always ready to buy and sell when needed, provided the price is right. A couple of years ago, actually, no, basically less than that. Whenever the whole uh, pandemic thing kicked in, price of oil tanked completely. Uh, the commodity traders stepped in, bought it, and stored it. Uh, so it's it's a useful function. Whether it should be run by the bunch of bastards and vo- bond villains who run the organisations now is another issue. And in terms of building a new society, we got to think about what we do to replace the commodity traders because the function is perfectly legitimate.
0: Yeah, so not, not a socially useless function like some forms of uh, stock market we've been looking at over the last few weeks. So oil, metals minerals foodstuffs that kind of thing a kind of frenetic trade though it becomes I suppose in in natural resources things we actually need to build the world that we live in um, there was a good quote from that book you recommended which you can give me the title of again because I've forgotten it and it was the international clearinghouse for essential goods which I kind of like that phrase it kind of I kind of understood what I was talking about when I heard that you know but of course it's also an extremely important and powerful political sphere as well mm-hmm. um, and, and political actors involved in it Um, Now, I suppose the next question is, why is it important, if you're a socialist, we've been trying to explain to people before why it's important that socialists actually understand capital, rather than just hold up placards saying "down with capitalism, that we begin to interrogate it and look through it and understand it better. Um, And why is it important, Sean, for a socialist to understand commodity
2: markets? Well, if you go back to Marx, most of you have gone here. Let's do that. Let's fucking go back
0: to Marx. Good man.
2: Well, back to Marx. Marx started with the commodity in the first volume of capital because he saw the commodity as the basis of capitalist society, right? So the relationship between capital and labor, between humankind and nature, between workers and what they produce, and how wealth is accumulated. All these things could be explained by looking at the production and exchange of commodities. I know today we're talking about raw commodities as opposed to, to finished goods. But even the trade in these commodities tell us a lot about the dynamics of modern day capitalism and imperialism. So whether you're talking about coal and oil, precious metals like lithium, food commodities like wheat, palm palm oil and soy, what normally lies behind their trade and their price is a story of land dispossession, deforestation, pollution, environmental degradation, labor exploitation, human rights abuses. And they normally take place in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And all of this occurs within a system of unequal exchange that transfers wealth from the populations of the global south to a handful of corporations and individuals in the global north. John Smith, who's who's written a good book on imperialism, he breaks it down by a cup of coffee. So he looks at it and he says, a cup of coffee costs 250. So where does that 250 go? Who receives it? And the actual farmers of the coffee only receive one pay of that. So what the question is, where does the rest of it go? And the answer is, you know, it is distributed according to capitalist profit logic and um, through the dynamics of imperialism. So that's, that's those are some of the reasons why it's important to understand that.
0: Good man, Sean, sure, I love that. It, it reminds me very much of what uh, I used to love, and I still love reading when Marx talks about primitive accumulation. Some people think Marx, particularly primitive accumulation, is the thing that happened at the start of capitalism, but others would argue, well, it kind of still, still ongoing. It's a, it's, a, it's a process. It's part of how the capitalist system works. Um, And so, yeah, it's about the interplay of money, power, and how resources flow out of poorer countries and into rich ones. And I'll just give a mention of that book again that you mentioned, John Smith, Imperialism in the 21st Century, and it's matched by another great book, by the way, by Utter and Prawak Patnak, the theory of imperialism another great book i read last year which is really useful and it it speaks the other part of imperialism another factor in imperialism you mentioned which is the the global suppression of wages and the super exploitation of the global south has plays a, a part in that and how how we and john smith talked about how we steal the global south gdp and pretend that it's ours makes us look really successful and um, thanks for that i mean this massive global trade is is controlled um, by only a few people almost sometimes and I know there's a danger Stuart of kind of identifying pantomime villains in all these things but they do exist actually but they're usually in charge or very influential in big corporations and I know that although Glencore went public in 2011 a lot of them are actually fairly secret of private companies which I suppose makes sense doesn't it some are owned by families uh, and individualists uh, and individuals so Feel free to have a wee rant about them. But in 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 when I was doing a bit of research, there was a couple of companies that came up. And I know that you might want to, you said you want to say something about Glencore, Sean. So I'll leave that for you. But there's organized as Trifigura and Vitol and Cargill. And I'd never heard of these. And I've been reading about capital and capitalism for quite a long time, but it was amazing to me when I started looking into them. They are quite shadowy, opaque organizations, Stuart. Give us a bit of information about any of those companies or corporations, anything you know about them.
1: Uh first of all an indication of the size here to go ahead and put this in some context. So I will answer your question but it's important I think for people to realize this. Alright. In dollar terms, I mean these guys are really taken off big since the end of World War II. And trade in manufactured goods and resources uh rose from 60 billion just after the war to more than 17 trillion in 2017, a quarter of which is made up by commodities. So this is a big part of world trade, controlled by a relatively small number of countries. The five largest oil trade, number of companies, sorry. The five largest oil trading houses handle 24 million barrels a day of crude and refined products. Seven leading agricultural traders handle just under 50% of the world's grains and oil seeds. These are big bastards. Glencore, accounts for a third of the world's supply of cobalt. Now this is important because cobalt in the future with the environmental change has got a, a major impact to play as well. Top three oil trader and the world's largest wheat trader. Vitol or Vitol, I'm never sure which, but they're the top boys in oil. Cargo are the kings of agriculture and the world's largest trader of grain. These are big bastards. I saw somewhere a while ago that I forget what it is, but the profit of these guys over the last couple of years has been something like $725 million, uh, which is equivalent to Japan's total exports. Yeah, these are big, important players. Glencore are privately owned, but they tend to, their investors tend to be people in the industry. Not many of us will have uh, shares in Glencore as regular investors. Speak the for yourself. Of-
0: speak for yourself. It's an important part of my stock portfolio.
1: And uh, I don't cool. mention the stock portfolio, met people <laughs> want to go ahead and ask you for money. Uh, that, uh, it's important to recognise, too, most of these cunts are actually based in Switzerland, and this is very important. They've done some very dodgy things over the years. Uh, and let um, we get into the whole thing about Iran and dodgy sanctions busting and so i maybe we'll yeah, talk okay. about this then. But the the American traders who fought about with the Iranian sanctions ended up in jail. Uh, Glencore, who were big into that, well, not big, not, uh, and Mark Richenko, one of the big companies that uh, gave birth to some other companies later on, they got fined next to bugger all or nothing whatsoever because being based in Switzerland, all right, which is where most of these guys are based, or Singapore, uh, then the Swiss authorities don't give a toss. So there's a very light regulatory touch over these people. Uh, which is why they get away with so much. Sorry, go Yeah,
0: ahead. extremely powerful and, and, and lack of regulation is important. I remember reading about Cargill, who I'd never heard of before, and as you said, the, the, the biggest grain trader and one of the biggest agricultural traders on the planet, a family-owned business of 14 billionaires. You would yeah. think, wouldn't you, people always talk about democracy and tyranny and all this bollocks, you would think, wouldn't you, that... As a planet, we might have moved beyond the idea that 14 billionaires would control the world's food. You know, and grain prices and rice prices—fucking shocking to me, particularly as we move into a stage of the the great unraveling, as we're calling the end of this century. Sean, you want to come in there? Maybe on the you were talking about Glencore earlier on.
2: Um, I was just going to say something about the the control of seeds, like because it sounds a bit boring. Like, but what is as you said, what we're talking about here is a effectively control of the world's food supply, right? So. We've reached the situation like there in the 1990s, there's new regulations and in intellectual property legislation that produced around the use of certain seeds to grow crops. And what it effectively did was protect the use of genetically modified seeds owned by these corporations and restrict the use of seeds that were traditionally used by, by local farmers. And the result is that the, the four companies and a handful of individuals to talk about now dominate half of the world's food supply, and it's already having huge consequences, like so many f- small farmers in the global South have been deprived of their means of subsistence and income, um, they've become dependent on a lot of these big conglomerates, um, and it also has huge implications for, as you said, Stevie, for the environment and food security, because for one re- one reason for that is we're seeing a wide variety of locally adapted crops that are quite resistant to global warming being replaced by standardised crops that might not survive in warmer temperatures. And this whole system is actually being enforced as well, you know, through the WTO, World trade organisation, through the IMF and World Bank, through their programmes, through the EU and through... Careful
0: now, Sean, don't slagging off the EU. <laughs> There's some FBPE fuckers listening to this.
2: And through bilateral trade deals. And, you know, like, we're, we're, even in the most optimistic scenario, like, we're facing into a future of extreme scarcity. And it's something that's really concerning, like...
0: Yeah, you've prefigured the question I was going to ask, actually, is that idea that you know, if, if you have an interest in your children or grandchildren's future, or indeed the future of the planet, um, there's an awful lot of power in the hands of literally a very few people here, people at the heads of these corporations or indeed private companies, um, and uh, about the flow of resources that that prefigure the production and creation of goods and services. And in, in the age of Mad Max, I mean, should these things not be under democratic control?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, as I said, in the context of the ecological crisis, we're facing a future extreme scarcity. Like in the most optimistic scenario of two degrees warming, that's going to be the case because we live on a finite planet. The U.N. has warned that there's only sixty harvests left in our so- soils, Now, that that's been disputed. But there's no doubt that the harvest of of vital crops is becoming more difficult due to due to land degradation, and industrial farming, extreme weather events, droughts, um, uh, you know, monsoons, and, and whatever else. A quarter of the world's population is already suffering from extreme water stress, and that's when they're going to get worse. But that's All the
0: thing, isn't it? We said this before that I mean, if we hit one point, we are gonna hit one point five in the next 10 years, we're probably gonna hit two degrees by 2040, 45. Mm-hmm. And even the most conservative suggestions are suggesting that an impact between ten and fifteen percent of global food production. Now, to, to me and you, that's a obviously a humanitarian disaster, but to these fuckers. That's simply a, a brilliant opportunity to make more profit because they will literally control not just the world's food sources, but every other fucking commodity on the planet, too, including water systems, by the way, which we've talked about before. I think the UN have said that by 2027 or something, something like 50 or 60 percent of the world's population won't have access to fresh drinking water. And again, mm. to me and you and Stuart, humanitarian disaster. To these people, it's just profit in that. And that's how they think, isn't it, Lionel? Um yeah. and Sean, do you carry on to
2: For us, how those resources are used and managed will be critical to the survival of most of humanity. Mm -hmm. That's the stakes we're looking at. But particularly those in the global south that are already suffering from imperial exploitation and global warming. So for us, it means democratic control of those natural commodities at source, but also a fundamental transformation of production and consumption um, as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, of course, what we're talking about here today aren't necessarily the producers the producers of these things. Although sometimes the the trader is also the producer because they own production as well, or they own the land, or they own the place where these things are extracted. Um, and we're not we're talking more about them acting as middlemen between the things that are extracted from the earth and who and when and how they sell it to, um, you know. And and as Stuart explained us already, there's a social utility to that in terms of matching supply mm. to demand in terms of the role of some of these traders. But in truth, commodity markets are they not, Stuart, sites of speculation as well and corruption and a lot of that is around the, the kind of vehicle for this which is futures trading which we've covered before haven't we in terms of. so give us give us a quick reminder for our listeners Stuart about what we mean by futures trading before before I ask you the next question mate uh
1: basically you're locking in the price so to go ahead and put it in some uh, real world context back in 1990 um forget the guy's name Andy Hall at Phipps Brothers he basically realized that uh, the futures price all right, was um, significantly better than the spot price. So he was able to actually buy and store a huge amount of oil, all right, and, anticip- and basically lock in the profit. Uh, but then he certainly anticipated a big increase in the price of oil. So what he did, and this is where it's not just futures, it's general hedging functionality as well, derivatives, etc. Well, I got into too complicated a level of detail. He bought back some of the hedges on the huge amount of oil which he purchased. And he actually had to go ahead and get a flotilla of ships. To go ahead and store all this oil, oil, oil because there was so fucking much of it. Phipps Brothers were part of Salomon Brothers at the time, which is another important issue. So uh, the entire financial sector is, is, is involved in this trade as well. Uh, now, as it happened, because of the Iraq war, I beg your pardon, the first time Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, partly because Kuwait was beginning to cheat on quotas and was reducing the price of oil even more right so Saddam thought I'm gonna go ahead and take these bastards right the price of oil shot up and because of that they made a fortune that's with the bit which wasn't actually hedged but just on the stuff in which he locked in at the futures price he made a lot of money on that as well so does that make sense in terms of... How it, does, yeah.
0: no, it does, yeah. No, it does. I know we've yeah. covered that before a couple of times about futures and derivatives, and people get that idea. People get the idea that you're buying you're buying future products at today's price, and you're locking in that price in the hope that in the future, the price goes up, and you can sell it then at, at massive profits. And I remember we talked briefly about the mm-hmm. idea that the fu- futures have been around for a long time, and we know that the concept yeah, yeah. has been there for hundreds of years. I mean, rice brokers in Japan had innovated the first mm-hmm. futures market. Mm-hmm. I think you told me this. You sent me this in 1697. So yep. the concept of futures markets has been around for a while in terms of hedging bets and in terms are trying to control markets as well. Um, And there had been oil derivatives or oil futures right at the start of the oil industry, I was reading back in the 19th century. But when Rockefeller grabbed all of that and took over just everything into production and distribution, they got rid of that because he monopolized everything. And of course, copper and tin traders have been at it for the last 100 years in the London Metal Exchange. But but things as you you said there start to go mental back in the 80s. Um, Oil becomes a tradable commodity, I think after World War II, but it really kicks off in the 80s. and it kicks off, though, there's a really weird little story about why, why how and why that kicked off. It would emerge eventually, of course, as a futures market. But it has something to do with the New York Mercantile and Child Exchange, uh, Stuart, and something to do with the humble potato.
1: Yeah, it's a funny set of stories. I mean, the, the Seven Sisters, the, the, the basic Rockefeller system was there for a long time. So there wasn't much trade in oil. Uh, and there was no real need for it because the price was fixed. Then without the breakup of that system, nationalisations, etc., oil became a whole lot more tradable. At the same time as this has happened in the 70s, NIMAX is basically all around the trading of potatoes. And the NIMAX was a little obscure market run by a rather dodgy bunch of people with a very dodgy bunch of rough traders. Uh, and there was one guy whose name I can't remember, a farmer who got pissed off with NIMAX, and he basically ended up with a huge uh, number of contracts to sell the Maine potato. All right, Maine as in the state, Maine. All right he couldn't go ahead and fulfill them. So basically the NYMAX went completely screwed and people didn't trade potatoes on there anymore. Uh, And it pretty much went bust. Somebody said, we can go ahead and keep this market going, let's get into oil trading instead. And so they kicked off again and think in 1983, after Reagan had done a little bit of deregulation, NYMAX basically recreated itself as the center of the trading in oil. And, and, that a, and that
0: was Sorry, mate. No, I was just saying that, that becomes, once that's over, once that cat's out of the bag, of course, it changes It changes the, the capitalist economy, doesn't it, significantly? And 1990, of course, was a, was a big year in many ways. There's two aspects this I want to talk about. One's, you've mentioned already, the Iraq War, and the other ones, the Soviet Union. I want to come to you first, Sean, about, I mean, geopolitically, the Iraq War was crucial. I remember it very well. I was still at university at the time, and... Um, I want to give us a quick reminder, Sean, what was the supposed reasons for the, the, that particular imperialist adventure? And then I want to come to you, uh, Stuart, About uh, I know you've got a really good story there about what was going on in the middle of the Iraq war as regards oil.
2: Yeah, um, the first Gulf War or Iraq war was launched by the Bush senior administration under the pretext of liberating little Kuwait from the awful of Saddam Hussein.
0: The little Bel- the Belgium of the Middle East. The, Mid- the Belgium, Belgium
2: of the Middle East who had been armed to the teeth by the Americans during the Iraq-Iran war, of course. Right. So how it was presented wasn't much the same terms as the most recent Iraq war, as a liberal intervention to civilise the natives and um, restore the rule of law internationally. Um, But we've talked about long-established patterns, and what it was really about was the same thing that had concerned the Western powers for more than half a century. Um, So protecting the regimes that served U.S. interests, Saudi Arabia... Qatar and in this case Kuwait, guaranteeing this military supremacy, supremacy sorry of uh, Israel in the region, and of course uh, securing control of oil, which is becoming uh, extremely valuable.
0: Yeah, and it was a great opportunity, wasn't it, Stuart, for these uh, for these oil futures and a great opportunity for the, the global commodity traders, the people that stepped into that market and were now developing that market. And they did so with that concept, which I love at the time, which is paper, paper barrels. Tell us what paper barrels are and why they why they were so important.
1: Well, basically, I mean, um, it's oil. You can buy, store it and sell it or sell the contract without having to get any actual oil involved in it whatsoever. So you're not so touching
0: people, oil, the oil's not coming anywhere near uh, you, there's no oil in your, you know, you're not storing it anywhere.
1: Now these guys don't want a big buck. If, if you're in some kind of a trader in the city, you don't want someone showing up uh, at the Thames saying, I've got a few million barrels of oil for you here. So it's just basically the buying and selling of the futures contract. It doesn't actually add, or some kind of derivative contract. It doesn't add or subtract from the amount of oil in the market at all. Uh, and uh, the guy that begun this was Andy Hall is an interesting guy he worked for BP and uh, older older listeners will remember that BP was actually the Anglo-Iranian oil corporation in the old days so whenever the revolution took place in Iran BP was a bit knackered so Andy Hall started to go ahead and trade oil for BP. Pitts Brothers got hold of him and he became a major oil trader. And they made a fucking fortune. All right, from that deal I was talking about there where they basically bought a huge amount of oil using Salomon Brothers' credit lines. Uh, they had it and affected, what was the figure there? I think it went, yeah. Stuff he bought for 20 was selling at 40. all right so he made a fortune from that. He also made a fortune from the futures contract as well because that uh, the differential between that and the regular price went up too. He would not have been able to do that had there not been such a massive market and uh, in the futures in the futures area he wouldn't be able to go ahead and do that hedge and, and buy such a huge amount of oil. Sorry, carry
0: on. No, you're dead on. So people are, are buying and also betting on virtual barrels of oil. That's the paper barrel. I love it. You know, locking in the current yeah. price, making bigger deals, whilst at the same time, and this is an important factor as well, I think, in, the, in that neoliberal model, is borrowing vast sums of money without the, the threat of a sudden price shock. And this brings us into the financialization of capital that begins oh, during okay. the 80s and 90s, Sean, that we see the emo- that process of financialization, mortgages, bonds, and now commodities, futures and derivatives. And that process of financialization sucks up all the available investment money into speculative and socially useless activities that's important too isn't it and and it also encourages the creation of cheap money and 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 debt-laden money which becomes a a core feature that leads of course to the 2001 crash of 2008 crashes so financialization is an important part of that sean isn't it this this idea at the heart of it the banking sector and free money or, or it's not free money debt laden money but cheap money becomes an important feature in this speculative activity
2: yeah, as you say, like, by this time, financialization was well underway in the major capitalist economies, like, through deregulation, through the Big Bang, um, and, and so on. So what we're talking about, as you say, like, is massive explosion of, of credit and the introduction of a whole load of new ways to make money from money. Um, and that's effectively what happened. Um, investors, capital, were looking for new sources of, of profit, as you know, the profit squeeze from uh, industrial capitalism set in and financialization was one one way out of the crisis they found themselves in. And so the one aspect of this, of course, as you said, was the ex- massive expansion of the futures market.
0: Yeah, sure. Financialization's is core to understanding how the futures market and bonds and mortgages expand so quickly to the point where it dwarfs the actual trade in real things, goods and services, a thing that people think of as capitalism, isn't it? Things that are made in factories that get traded elsewhere. This, these new kinds of markets are dwarfing that, aren't they? Because of financialization.
1: And I think it reveals very starkly one more aspect of the way that we misuse the economic surplus as a society, because a lot of this ends up with these people, like happened after 2008, uh, quantitative easing, etc., etc. we end up with people investing in commodities, and that means the price of foodstuffs increased for the rest of us, and that particularly shafted many poor people in 2008, and will probably have a similar effect now, because things are gonna change. The stock market will probably suffer a little bit, because we're gonna have um, almost certainly some increase in interest rates, uh, and uh, therefore more money goes into commodities, and we end up shafting poor people again here, uh, and across the developing world too. So this, I think, what I'm trying to say is that this is not a victim-free crime.
0: No, and it also breeds instability. We saw in the yes. the Arab Spring a lot of that was to do with the rise, sudden mm-hmm. rise in food prices, which was was a direct, you know, relationship there to the the commodity markets at the time. But uh, moving on quickly, lads, because I don't want to run out of time. And there's loads to cover here, but perhaps I suppose the greatest moment for these commodity traders, mm-hmm. this kind of wasn't new, but this expanded series of markets that emerges in the 80s and 90s which includes all futures but as you've said Stuart includes food and minerals and everything else was the fall of the Soviet Union who let's remember were the largest you know producers of oil metals and grain at the time and before we get into the fire sale that was the Soviet Union I'll come to you on that Stuart and the block itself Sean what was a give us a bit about the geopolitical backdrop to this and but also its impact on the people because it wasn't a, as Stuart just said it wasn't a victim free crime was it? the end of the Soviet Union it wasn't just about the appearance of Coca-Cola in shops was it?
2: No um well, what happened in the Soviet Union over the course of its history was the fastest passage from a largely feudal rural economy to a developed industrial one. And that involved the socialization and large scale production of food and other essential commodities. Um, through this, they were able to sustain a high standard of living for Soviet citizens. And that was the time when they were on a co- having to be in a constant war footing due to the threat of uh, US imperialism. Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and there's a whole load of internal and external factors that were involved in its collapse, and maybe address that as part of our discussion on imperialism. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, Boris Yeltsin was was introduced, was backed by the US to take up the position of US president. And it was just during his time in office, really, that the rapid transition from a planned socialist economy to a free liberalized free market one took place. And it took place under the guidance of economists and policy advisors that were supplied directly by the US. People know Jeffrey Sachs probably the most famous um, Harvard economist who proposed shock therapy for post-communist Poland and Russia. And what shock therapy involved was deregulation. That's a familiar story, like deregulation cuts the public spending, the removal of price controls on goods that were essential for a decent standard of living. Um, And the big one, of course, was the wholesale privatization of public goods and assets. And this benefited oligarchs, who I'm sure Stuart's going to talk about, but for everyone else, it was a total disaster. So
0: Yeah, you know. I read I read some of the, the the one of the reports about that whole period of the transition from, from communism to, to the free market led to the deaths of over 10 million people in the Eastern Bloc. You know, it was a huge impact on, on socially, which Russia and other parts of that world haven't recovered from. But um there's a really good f- um programme on Netflix, I only discovered it last week by accident, called um a perfect crime. I don't know if you guys have seen it, and it's about it's actually not too bad, it's about the assassination of the the president of the Troy hand. And that was the pri- the company put in charge of the privatization of East Germany. It's a fascinating little insight to what was happening in East Germany at the time and the mass privatization. Yeah. And it was just what was going on in the Soviet Union and what I'm going to come to Stuart's talk next was, was happening all across the Eastern Bloc. And there were literally people arriving out of taxis into these offices in East, you know, just buying up huge fucking companies, massive corporations, you know, and becoming the, the new class of oligarchs, of course, that emerged in Eastern Europe in the early 1990s. And um, Stuart, um, Soviet Union, Eastern Bloc was a was a bonanza, wasn't it for these for these kind of the Wild West? It was kind of Wild West of modern capitalism, didn't it? I, I was reading the other day that um, in the commodities area of the Soviet Union there was a, a, there was an assassination, particularly in the metals market. There was an assassination every three days of someone trying to kind of maneuver into this market because everyone knew that money to be made was was ridiculous. They called it the Great Patriotic Aluminium War in the sense of a piss-take, of course, and the irony of the Great Patrick War of the Second World War. And, of course, we have one particular bloke living in London who'd done very well out of it himself, didn't it? Tell us a little bit about that, Giza.
1: First thing to remember about Abramovich was that in 1987, he set up an oil trading company, all right, because Gorbachev basically allowed this to be done as part of the whole... Um, perestroika gig, and he had actually made quite a lot of bit of money from this already. He basically bought Russian oil, fuck all, and then sold it abroad for a huge amount. So he had money. When they did the privatization gig, there was this belief that they could that there should be some kind of it should be equal in some way. So if you worked for a privatized, um, sorry, a institution about to be privatized, you got some vouchers you could exchange for shares. Now. The Russian people didn't know much about the whole shareholding thing and they were a bit dubious about this. What people like Obranovich basically did was buy the shares often for fuck all. They were going around telling people, you need the cash, you don't need these vouchers, I'll buy the shares. Nothing illegal about it, just basically immoral. And so he ends up with a huge amount of shares in these oil companies, which he's got for nothing. All right, so he's basically buying a business worth billions for about 50 or 60 quid, which is why he ends up with so, so much dosh. But the whole thing begun, all right, from his ability to go ahead and trade oil uh, with our own commodities traders from 1987 onwards. That was the big wound which Gorbachev's perestroika inflicted on the Soviet Union thereafter.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I remember reading that um, Abramovich bought uh, some of his companies, or one of the companies, or his oil company, off the Rubin Brothers. Um, and that's, that's the company that, that bought Mayfair in London, and they're also major donors to yeah. the Tory party. Uh, and they recently opened, of course, Rubin College, which is now one of the 29 official colleges of Oxford University. Uh, the the one, the, the last college opened was in 1990, and that was the Kellogg's College. And we know about Kellogg's at the moment because they just sacked fourteen hundred workers in America. You know, so the link. I mean, capital is is uh, a as I say in It's in. It's, it's it's ruling all and it controls all, doesn't it, Lionel? And, and those commodity traders, of course, therefore created really Russia's new class of oligarchs. There was an interesting aside about Vitol. I can't remember to do with Cuba. What was it about Vitol on Cuba? They it was something to do during the the, the crisis in Cuba. Vitol stepped in and was one of the first funders. I think of. Of, uh, of 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 they lent money or they lent oil to Cuba, but then Cuba were indebted to Vitol, so then they kind of were indebted, and they kind of that pushed Cuba into the tourism industry and building their first five star hotels and so on. So these people are everywhere there, you know. As a famous um unionist politician once said about about the probies and dairy in um in the 1970s, as these people are spreading their testicles all over the place, you know, uh, and their their t- their testicles and their tentacles are all over the place, um. I want to move on next because there was another massive dynamic, of course, aside from the from the, fall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Sean. And it was about the coming online of China, of course. And it's the other dynamic in the mad world of commodities training. By 2008, China was exporting more in one day than it did in the whole of 1978. So that shows you that the difference in that 20 to that 30 year period, how China went from nothing to be to be dominant in the world in, in world economics. Now, Sean, you're a resident expert on China, only just because you've been there a couple of times. Um, and its transformation economically has been has been more influential to the world economy even than the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And before I go to Stuart about the impact of China on commodities and what that means, tell us a little bit about China.
2: Yeah, well, I wouldn't say I'm as an expert. I just tend to rehash what I read. Well, you
0: went out with someone from China. For me, that's level of expertise and <laughs> none of the rest of us have. All right.
2: Yeah, I tend to rehash what I read in Monthly Review. That's my secret. <laughs> Which has published a really a lot of really good stuff in China in recent years. Like so, in terms of China's transformation that's achieved in thirty years, they say what it took the US sixty years to achieve, and what it took Britain hundred years to achieve. So, in terms of its economic capacity, its exports, its urbanization, infrastructure, the standard of living enjoyed by its citizens, the big challenge, I suppose, and I'm sure it'll talk a wee bit about this, is the China's development path is hugely resource and energy intensive um and china still has some way to go in terms of meeting its objectives so for example i found this hard to believe when i first read it but i checked it out it's legit china used more concrete in two years than a, the us used up in an entire century you know unbelievable. <laughs> has become the single biggest importer of natural resources from africa and latin america so oil copper zinc iron cobalt so on there's no sign of this slowing down and well, I suppose, in in assessing it, like or looking at it, the relationship which the China has with countries of the global south it doesn't quite look like old imperial forms of plunder. I was going to
0: it, ask that question. This, I was going to ask that question. No yeah. left to dare speak. Are China the new imperialist? You know, We've yeah. Just it, it doesn't.
2: It doesn't quite look like old imperial forms of plunder. Like, so it's not a one way relationship. There's bilateral sort of partnerships. There's mutual exchanges and mutual benefits. There's political relations, long-established political relationships there between China and countries in, in the global south. But at the same time, it would be hard to say that there's no exploitation involved or that it doesn't have massive environmental implications. Like, um, It also has huge geopolitical implications. So China's rise, as, as we've seen, has led to the onset of a, a new Cold War led by the, by the U.S., um, and i feel that even under biden and that's only going to accelerate or escalate sorry
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one that we might do something more on that because I think we need to do a couple of podcasts. We've been asked actually to do a podcast or two on China and particularly China's role in Africa, because we're talking now about the second scramble for Africa, the first one being the 1870s and the the occupation of Africa by the imperial powers. And what's going on there now, because obviously South Africa, gold, Ethiopia, coffee, Nigeria, oil, Ivory Coast, coca, Zambia, copper, the DRC, minerals of, of every kind. You mentioned uranium and cobalt and and, and coal tan for mobile for mobiles africa has been a source of, of commodities that we need for for production for 150 years and it, and it still is it's whether china's relationship with africa is one as you said of imperialist exploitation or one of, as you said that might have more benefits for both it's quite clear that when western companies take Coltan and cobalt out of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Congolese people aren't seeing fucking any of that or any of the profits from it. But we get technology, so fuck them. That's kind of the attitude here, isn't it, I suppose? But Stuart, to you for this last one, I suppose, because we're nearly running out of time. We've done 40 minutes, believe it or not, already. I wanted wanted to ask you about... um, we keep hearing about the fact we're in the middle of a commodities gold rush that what's happening now is as big as what happened in the Soviet union 30 years ago. And others refer to it as a commodity super cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is a super cycle and why is it important for us to understand what that is and where, where might it lead?
1: There is some belief that uh, commodities prices go up in a big cycle. I'm somewhat skeptical of this because uh, the economic, the economy is difficult to predict and all this stuff about Kondratiev long waves and so on. I'm a
0: fucking big fan of Kondratiev's long waves. You'll fucking knock on the head, please.
1: And uh, I'm sorry, but I just I just think things are a little bit more complicated than that, uh, particularly regarding commodities. And we live in a very, very unpredictable planet right now for a variety of reasons. Uh, but it's supposed to be about 29, 30 odd years. Uh, and there is some dispute about whether we're heading into a new super cycle or are we looking at one which is going to fizzle out? Because the basic problem for the commodity traders is they make an awful lot of money from oil and in Glencore's case, in particular, from coal. They're trying to diversify away and get into more sustainable forms of energy, but they're never gonna make as much money. And this is where we got to think about taking these guys on. Glencore make a huge amount of money from coal and they are amongst the people who are encouraging the Chinese to carry on using coal for obvious reasons and spreading misinformation about uh, climate change because it's in their interest to go ahead and do so. Uh, Glencore uh, and others do not have any interest in things changing. Um, If you're into the meat market, say, and a lot of these guys are big in the meat, in the meat area, particularly in Brazil, uh, you want to encourage people to get more meat and eat more meat because that's where you make your money. And the meat industry is controlled by a very small number of people who will encourage the eating of more meat in particular. And these are the ones that are telling Bolsonaro, go ahead and burn some more forest down so we can produce more meat to sell it to the growing Chinese market in particular. Uh, So, uh, nobody's really sure what is going to happen and how things are going to develop. If we do want to go ahead and change the environmental dynamic, we have to do something about how much coal uh, is burnt in China. There's no way around that. If you buy a fucking one of those um, solar panels now, it's gonna be made uh, with cheap uh, Chinese coal and with cheap Chinese labor, because it's a very labor-intensive business. So, if we do go more environmental here, Uh, Given the fact that so much gets produced in China, all right, with cheap Chinese labor and cheap Chinese coal, we're screwed. And the commodities people are very important to that dynamic and also to the agricultural dynamic too.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, mate. It's when you look at um, the commodities market in particular, I think sometimes the old um, phrase that we used to use quite a lot on the left, which is that we need to have democratic control of the means of production, distribution and exchange seems actually more (laughs) relevant than ever. It's quite clear that we need to control these resources what gets taken out of the ground how they are used, the decisions taken about how they're invested and what they make um because as we know not everything that's useful is profitable not not everything that's profitable is, is useful and we're at that stage of the of world development now i did have a really interesting story there was a great story in that what is the name of that book you recommended me Stuart? i can't remember it do i have it here about i can't too. remember too. all on the same. the world for sale that's called, it. Yeah. Yeah, Very the good. And there was a there was a fantastic story in it about Cargill, the grain trader, and the collapse of um the price of Zimbabwean dollars. And you know, the banks, the central bank in Zimbabwe couldn't print enough and make enough dollars for, for the economy to continue. So Cargill simply stepped into the middle of a national economy and printed their own money. I just thought that was fucking brilliant. They just made their own money, they bought a printing press, they printed their own little tokens, and it was backed by the dollar, or it was linked to the dollar rather, so it was a proper currency. Um, and they they needed it because they needed to, to they needed to supply their local suppliers and give money to their local suppliers. So they gave them their own IOUs. It's back to like saying out of the fucking factory factory system of the 1820s, you know what I mean? Where companies made their own coins for workers to buy out of company shops. And of course, when that money starts to finally trickle in back into Cargill, inflation has wiped out its value. So they actually made money on their own money, as well as making money on the purchase of all the grain from Zimbabwe. So we'll leave it there. That's how powerful these people are. And that's how dangerous they are, lads. I'm going to give it... If you to, do you want to say anything else before I sign you off or just want to fucking just go home? Sean's nodding his head like he couldn't. He can't wait to get the fuck out of it. Stuart, I'm going to give the last word to you then, mate. What about commodities market? Are we building the gulags yet or what? Or are we just going to wait for the guillotines? Uh,
1: I think we need to go ahead and... Uh... We need to use the expertise of these fuckers because they are actually quite uh, bright, nimble sort of people. So, But we need, first and foremost, to understand what needs to be done. What is the point of commodity trading from a socialist point of view? Because you're always going to have people buying and selling, and people are going to go ahead and need these resources. So we need to understand the market as it is now and as it, we would like it to be. Uh, and I just want to go ahead and finish one thing here, echoing something that Sean was talking there later. Um, look at, again, it's not a victim-free crime. Um, over the past couple of decades, looking here, the major commodity trading firms have generated huge profits from the production and trade of ethanol and biodiesel. The biofuels boom diverted vast quantities of grain and oil seeds from food production into fuel production. right so this is how powerful these people are so we need to go ahead and harness that power for the forces of good rather than from the bunch of bond villain cunts that run these companies and these people are genuinely evil i'm not exaggerating here when you look at what they've done and you read about the whole purpose of their existence these are absolute bastards that we do need to contain uh there's no way we can actually build an alternative society in which things work for the good of the the people in general and these guys still exist as they currently do and that's why i think we need to understand
0: thanks for that stuart thanks sean i think i'll leave us here with the vision of a bond villain stroke and a white fluffy cat and take us take that take that us all with us um thanks very much for listening folks that was episode six of what the fuck is a stock market i hope you found it useful um, we'll be back in the new year with another series of podcasts with our comrade Stuart McGill. Um, we're not entirely sure what we're going to talk about. We think China's a big one, and we think imperialism's also a big subject, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll visit those two thorny issues. Um, that's us for now. Have a good Crimbo. Nolig a galere. Slang of foil. That, comrades, was trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil.